0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Wherefore our sovereign lord, calling into his blessed remembrance this high and great charge as part of his royal majesty and estate, not oblivious, nor putting out of his godly mind the unnatural mischievous and great, perjuries, treasons, homicides and murders, in shedding of innocents' blood, with many other wrongs, odious offences and abominations against God and man, committed and done by Richard, late Lord of Gloucester. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 193, The Blood of Innocence. The text I've just read was from one of Henry VII's first acts as king, an act of attainder condemning the actions and supporters of Richard III, last of the Plantagenets. You will notice a couple of things from the passage. Firstly, that Henry quite clearly hated full stops. But secondly the accusation that Richard had shed the blood of innocence, And that's what we're here to do today, decide amongst us once and for all what happened to those innocents, Edward and Richard, princes in the tower, and who was responsible for what happened to them. The question has fascinated us for centuries, despite or maybe because of the paucity of evidence, because here were indeed two innocents, Edward, aged 12, captured by his uncle and confined to the Tower of London. And his brother, Richard of York, even younger, just ten years old, given up by his mother from sanctuary to the safekeeping of his uncle again. Now we know that we will in all likelihood never know for sure what happened. But despite that, we'll keep trying. And of course it's important on a human scale, but also in understanding what kind of people in Richard, Henry, Margaret and Buckingham that we're dealing with. I have been asked many times why I've held off for so long covering this topic, and the answer is that there is a general feeling that poor old Richard has rather had the rough end of a pineapple on this one. So I thought we should get Henry Tudor firmly onto the scene before we started. So, due to popular demand, I decided that we should have another vote. Well, due to my demand, really. Anyway, the drill is the same as last time. Two weeks to listen to the podcast episode, vote with your option, and you'll be entered into the prize draw for the Henry III Long Cross silver penny, made somewhere around twelve fifty. Then the consolation prizes of cut medieval silver coins, again just as old. Details are available on the website, thehistoryofengland.com, and, of course, the History of England Facebook page, and you have until the 16th of September to vote. On the website, thehistoryofengland.com, are also two pages I've written, one summarising the evidence we do have, and one summarising the arguments that I've put in this podcast. Now, obviously, complete books have been written on this subject, so those pages boil it all down to their very, very bare essentials but I hope they're useful if you want to look at them. And what are your voting options? Well, I've narrowed it down to four, as I shall describe, though I'm sure, in fact, I know there are many other theories. But let's have four. Number one, Richard Third killed them. Number two, Richard Third spirited them away somewhere. Number three, Buckingham killed them. And number four... Some combination of Margaret Beaufort and or Henry Seventh killed them. Probably the first thing worth repeating is that this is not a court of law. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the court of public opinion. One of the quite painful things about reading up for this episode was coming across the same statement time after time, and this was one of them. No court of law could convict Henry, Richard, whoever. They're innocent until proven guilty and so on. Well, we really can't be having that here, can we? How much fun would that be? So, figuratively speaking, I'm sticking my fingers in my ears and singing Black Dog every time anyone uses the phrase. Okay? Hope that's clear. This is an on-the-balance-of-probabilities kind of poll. So, I think there are actually two questions here which get a bit mixed up. The first is, what happened to the princes in the tower? It might be easier to say who killed the princes in the tower, but there are plenty of theories flying around to say that nobody killed them and that they're happily living as stockbrokers in Croydon. So the question is, what happened to them? And in answering that, who was responsible? And that's what the vote's going to be about. But the second question appears to be how we should feel about all this. So, you might think that murdering small boys is necessarily a bad thing. But in fact... There's a deal of argument that goes on that things are different in the 15th century, that things were different in particular for rulers, that plenty of similar things have been done before, context is all, so on and so forth. Therefore, we have three parts to today's episode. Firstly, the evidence. What is the main evidence, other than conjecture, that we have available to us? Secondly, the body of the thing, the arguments for and against each of the four options I've outlined. And finally, to finish up with a couple of minutes about that question of why this is all important. So, here we go. Let's start with the evidence that we have. Our first lodestone is the Italian visitor and author Dominic Mancini, who visited England in 1483, leaving before the end of the year, a man not influenced by later Tudor histories at all. He clearly got to know Edward V's physician, who is the only source Mancini actually mentions in his whole book, a man called John Argentine. Mancini also clearly believed that Richard had topped the lads, was honest enough to admit that he couldn't prove it, but dishonest enough to try and influence us also to the same view. So, he relates that after Edward was put in the tower, he was in a right old panic, the poor lad. The young king like a victim prepared for sacrifice, sought remission of his sins by daily confession and penance because he believed death was facing him. Then, of course, Richard persuades Elizabeth to give up Richard of York as well. All because it was absolutely essential they were both available for the coronation. This was directly before Oops postponing the coronation. The London Chronicle then relates that two boys were seen shooting and playing together in the Tower of London. But according to Mancini, bad stuff started to happen after June 13th, 1483 and the fall of Hastings. So, all the prince's attendants were withdrawn from them. However, it should be noted that there are still payments being made to their named servants near the end of July. OK, but then, ominously... Mancini says that they were withdrawn into the inner apartments of the tower proper and day by day began to be seen more rarely behind the bars and the windows till at length they ceased to appear altogether. Suggestive. And of course, naughtily, Mancini intends it to be suggestive, so watch out. Mancini, however, goes on specifically to say that he hasn't been able to find out what happened to the boys. What is absolutely clear was that people then began to believe that Richard had done the indecent thing and had the boys killed. The Crowland Chronicle is our other source less influenced by the later Tudor historians, and it relates how a rumour arose that the boys had been killed while relating the events of Buckingham's Rebellion in 1483. As we saw in episode 189, this rumour seems to persuade the rebels to base their rebellion around Henry Tudor's claim rather than Edward V, because everyone thinks Edward's dead anyway. Now one historian I read relates that the really interesting thing about the whole affair is how the women in the story react, principally Elizabeth Woodville, but also Margaret Beaufort and to a degree Margaret of Burgundy, Richard III's sister. So, Elizabeth Woodville is in sanctuary with all her girls, of course, until Richard finally persuades her to come out in March 1484 and he cuts a deal with her. And we will speculate wildly about why that happened later. For further contemporary opinion, all of it confirms that there are plenty of people who believe that the boys have been done away with by Richard, but none of them constitute proof in any way. Just the recording of Tittle Tattle. So... Here we go. The recorder of Bristol records in a matter-of-fact way that the boys were, quote, put to silence before the 15th of September 1483. In January 1484, the Chancellor of France told his audience that Edward IV's sons had been murdered and the crown given to his murderer. The Spanish merchant Diego de Valera in 1486 took away the story from England that the boys had been poisoned in 1488. A London chronicle says that they had been killed in 1483. John Rouse, that bona fide fully paid out member of the anti-Richard society, says Richard killed them before the end of July 1483. In 1500, a Dutch chronicle related that they'd been starved to death. I mean, I could go on. And so I will. A bloke in Danzig says that the boys were murdered when Richard took the throne and the recorder of Rotterdam said exactly the same thing. Philip de Comines, in about 1500, got really confused, saying first that Richard made himself king, then killed his nephews. Then he said later that he killed the nephews first, then made himself king. And then he said, oh, did I tell you that in fact Buckingham killed the lads? There's a particularly interesting fragment in the Ashmolean Museum, which says that Richard killed them by the advice of Buckingham, a phrase that could mean that Buckingham actually did the deed, but with Richard's knowledge. Another chronicle says there's a lot of talk saying it was Buckingham what did it. In essence, all this collection of stuff says is that people liked talk and that many people believed it was Richard, some of them have believed it was Buckingham, but none of it appears to be based on any firm evidence. Then we get to Thomas More, And his account is probably the most influential, because he provides those joys and delights set in detail. It could very well, of course, be utter piffle. But as we all know, it's not what you say, it's the way that you say it. Or at least, that piffle, confidently stated, is absolutely as likely to be believed as God's honest truth. Moore's tale then gets taken up by Shakespeare, who writes a really terrific play, actually, unlike his feeble comedies and the rest is history. Of course, I need to remind you all of the standard health warning against Moore, Shakespeare, etc. et al. They are deeply influenced both by the propaganda of the Tudor dynasty, and indeed they were writing with the Tudor king on the throne, and writing stuff such as, "Oh, by the way, it wasn't the last king who callously smothered two small boys, it was our current king, it was a surefire way to an early grave. Plus, Shakespeare is in the entertainment business, not in the history business. So, having said that, Moore bases his story on a confession made by one James Tyrrell in 1502. James Tyrrell had been very close to Richard III, but as it happens when Henry invaded in 1485 to steal the throne from the rightful King of England, Tyrrell was in Guine, near Calais, and so not involved and therefore he was able to reconcile himself with the new usurper and, just to be doubly sure, bought himself a couple of pardons while he was about it. But then he later became embroiled in one of the conspiracies against Henry Seventh. Interrogated in London in 1502, he was condemned as a traitor and executed. There's no written record of his confession, but it is this on which Moore bases his record of events. His story is then, that in July 1483, Richard told his constable of the tower, one Robert Brackenbury, to kill the princes. Brackenbury was a man of some principle, for he said no, he would never do such a thing. So Richard sent him an order to give up all the keys over to his most faithful servant, James Tyrrell. This Brackenbury does, and reputedly, was to end his days at Richard's side, trying to kill Henry on the field of Bosworth. Tyrrell then found a chap called Miles Forrest, quote, A fellow fleshed in murder. And John Dighton, A big, broad, square, strong knave. You see where this is going, I take it. They then got together, wrapped up the two princes in their bedclothes and smothered them to death. The bodies were then buried at the bottom of a stairs being built in the tower and then at a later date... Moore heard that they were moved to a more suitable location by a guilty king. Now, suspicion and distrust surrounds Moore's story. There's that bias we've talked about. People note that we only have Moore's word for the confession. They note the fact that the story is spookily similar to the babes-in-the-wood kind of folk tale, and all the different stories flying around it with which his story conflicts. However, Moore's tale suddenly assumed greater significance because of the events of 1674. Some of Charles II's workmen, or at least workmen during the time of Charles II, Charles himself was probably far too busy with one of his mistresses at the time, dug up a bunch of bones, wait for it, at the bottom of a staircase. Wild! Suddenly, some facts that might actually be verifiable. Everyone did their best to ignore the fact that Moore had also said the bones were moved away from the staircase. Well, Charles II, once he put his pants on back for a moment, was most interested and assumed the bones belonged to the princes and had them buried in Westminster Abbey. In 1933, the bodies were looked at again in the scientific method. This review doesn't get a much better write-up than the original discovery, to be honest. The study gaily concluded that they were indeed the bones of two children of Edward and Richard's ages. There was a bloodstain on the skull commensurate with suffocation and everyone said, "Pap ah, told you so. But they then also began to throw cherry pips at the report. The sex of the children hadn't been established, for example. Just a minor point. And since when did a bloodstain on the skull indicate suffocation? And had he checked it was blood, not just a rusty nail? Oh dear. Sadly, but reasonably, the Abbey of Westminster had now had enough of people messing about with bones buried on consecrated ground, and so they won't let anyone dig them up again. Four reassessments have been done on the original report, which concludes that, yep, they do seem to be the age of the princes, and a bunch of arguments about whether or not you can tell if the two sets of bones are from related people. But hate it or loathe it, the bones are a red herring. They're not going to prove a thing. The terribly good historian Charles Ross actually did think they did count as evidence when writing in the 1980s because we could account for all the people sent into the tower and therefore there shouldn't be any stray bodies lying around. I can't believe that. Another body of a child was found walled up in one room. The body of an Iron Age body was found buried very deeply the depth of our bones were found 10 foot down, which is also very deep and could relate to much earlier than 1483, maybe all the way back to the conquest. Really, unless modern science can get at them, just put the bones to the back of your mind, which is probably the best place for bones anyway. OK, so that's the evidence. As you can tell, it's pretty rubbish. So let's think about possible murderers and possible motivations then go on to look at the actions of the people involved and see what we can dig up. Qui bono, as it were. Who profited from the murders? Who are the candidates? Obviously, top of the list is Richard, and on him, sadly, we will have to spend most of the time. Nothing is easy in life, and this is no exception. It is widely assumed that Richard had everything to gain by removing the boys. The argument goes that they would always be a focus for rebellion and therefore he would have to get rid of them. It's also noted that this would in fact be nothing new, nothing new at all after all. Richard II was in all likelihood done away with by Henry IV. Once his son was dead, Henry VI was killed by Edward IV. Relatively little criticism is levelled at them for so doing, actually. And it's a fair argument it's a killer justification, surely. <laughs> if you accept that Richard has a motive, then the chain of events seem to be what exactly you'd expect to happen. So, i.e., Richard kills the princes. He can't announce that they died naturally because no one would believe both of them had died of natural causes at the same time. Obviously, He can't produce them to refute claims of their murder because he did murder them. So he would simply keep quiet and wait for the passage of time to cover the traces. And so the Richard killed them hypothesis seems to fully explain the facts. But wait, there are counter arguments to that core motivation point, that point that Richard had a clear motivation to kill the boys. That of course he wanted them out of the way. And here goes for that counter-argument. Richard has just passed an act through Parliament, making the two princes illegitimate. So he had nothing to fear from them. In fact, by killing them, he increased the importance of other potential competitors. So he increased the importance of the daughters of Edward IV. Could they attract support? And they were far less secure than having the princes alive, locked safely in the tower. And then what about the son of Clarence, Edward, Earl of Warwick? Surely he was a much greater threat. He was only disbarred by an act of attainder, which could be reversed by Parliament at any time. And yet he was treated as though he was no threat whatsoever. In fact, in the end, it was Henry who would execute Warwick. And finally, getting rid of the princes, left the door open for any other pretenders who might want to declare their hand, a door through which Henry Tudor himself gaily danced. These are claims that deserve to be considered. I might argue that whatever Richard and even Parliament had done to delegitimise Edward and the Duke of York was pretty irrelevant to those who were rebelling against Richard, who could reverse such an act in Parliament at a later time. And daughters, hated or loathed, were far less of a threat than male heirs, given there had been no sole Queen in England, with the possible and highly contentious exception of Empress Matilda. But it is a point that has to be considered, better to have your potential competitors publicly held under lock and key where you could control them. And look at Richard's perfectly friendly treatment of Clarence's son Edward Earl of Warwick held initially in Queen Anne's household and against whom Richard makes absolutely no move whatsoever. If you want to argue that Richard really didn't have cause to kill the boys you pretty soon come up against the big one the big question the absolute $64,000 question. If Richard had not killed the lads, then why didn't he simply produce them when the rumours spread? What could have been easier than that? So, there are four possible answers as to why Richard didn't produce the boys to disprove the rumours. It could have been one, because he had killed them, and so he couldn't produce them. It could have been two, that they'd been killed by someone else, and therefore he couldn't produce them. Number three... It could be that the boys had died of natural causes and so therefore he couldn't produce them. Or number four, the boys were somewhere else, in secret, and so he couldn't produce them. So, number one, fine, he killed them, therefore couldn't produce them. His best option was just to keep Stum. Number two, being killed by someone else rather than Richard. We'll discuss later who that might have been, but the point is worth making that if the boys had been killed by someone else, Richard would have found it very difficult to parade the dead bodies through London, handing out accusations that it wasn't him, Governor, it was somewhere else. It's very unlikely anyone would have believed him. And then the third argument, that both boys had died of natural causes. The Lady Augusta Bracknell principle comes into play here. To lose one small nephew may be regarded as misfortune. To lose both... Looks like carelessness. It seems super unlikely that both died at the same time. However, it is worth noting that if they had both died of natural causes at the same time, it would have again been something of a nightmare for Richard. There's again no way Richard could declare to the world, oops, they died accidentally. Not both of them. No one would have believed him. So, to summarise two and three, if someone else had killed them, or if they had died of an illness, there would be nothing Richard could do except what happened. He'd have to keep quiet. And then the fourth reason, that Richard had spirited the boys away somewhere, somewhere safe, where they could do no damage and live out their life in obscurity. And let's spend a bit of time looking at the evidence for this. There is a tantalising reference to royal children at Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire in the royal accounts in Richard's reign. And although it's absolutely not clear who the royal children are and there are plenty of candidates, he maybe could have been one of the princes removed secretly from the tower, or indeed both of the princes. Maybe from there they were sent somewhere more permanent, possibly abroad. To support this case, you have the behaviour of Elizabeth Woodville to consider. In 1484, as we said, she agrees to come out of sanctuary. And it's more than just agreeing under some possible threat of violence to give in to Richard. To a degree, she supports Richard's regime, letting her daughters appear at court, for example, trying to persuade her son Dorset to come back from Henry and make his peace with Richard. The big question is, would she have made such a deal with her boy's murderer? or if she didn't know what had happened to her boys, and therefore it was a distinct possibility that Richard was their murderer. But if Richard had cooked up a plan with Elizabeth to send her boys secretly abroad, well, that would explain much more easily Elizabeth's actions. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. That Edward V had died because it's telling that no pretender later ever claims to be Edward V they all claim to be the Duke of York the second lad so maybe Edward died Richard agreed to send the younger one Richard abroad and could not contemplate any public pronouncements since no one would believe both Boyds had died accidentally and he did not want anyone to know where they were and therefore be able to foster rebellion the theory also meets the general character of Richard in not doing anything to harm his other nephew, the Earl of Warwick. And then in Perkin-Warbeck during Henry II's reign, there is a pretender who there does indeed claim to be Richard of York, and Margaret of Burgundy agrees that it is he. So there are some arguments to support that basic idea that Richard spirited the boys away and took them somewhere else. But in fairness... There are also good arguments against this reasoning. To accept this alternative story of the boys being spirited away, you have to believe it possible that Richard would have taken such a supermassive risk, losing direct control of the lad or lads to somewhere where they could pop up in rebellion at any time. It's an absolutely massive risk that he would have been taking. Secondly, I should also point out that there are reasons why Elizabeth Woodville might well have played ball with Richard, even if she was sure that he had in fact killed her boys. What had happened had happened, and she had her daughter's futures to consider. That's an absolutely key one. Could she watch her children live out a miserable existence in sanctuary rather than live the life to which they'd been born? So, to summarise, on Richard. He could have killed the boys in all likelihood before the end of 1483, maybe after one of the attempts in September to free them. He had access, he had opportunity, he appears to have motive. If you want to believe that it is not Richard that killed the princes, then you could just say, look, he was too honourable, but it's helpful to discredit the urgency of his motive, so that to agree that killing the boys was either unnecessary or counterproductive since by so doing he promoted the claims of others like the Woodville Girls and Henry. If you want to believe that it was not Richard that killed the princes, critically you have to have an alternative story, which explains why he did not produce the boys when rumours started spreading. And the only ones in town appears to be either the super unlikely one that they both died of natural causes in the same few weeks, or that he sent them away in secret. And this latter is your voting option B, ladies and gentlemen. So that's Richard. You might of course argue explanation options C and D. That someone else done them in, your honour. The case for Buckingham, option C, needs to be for Buckingham acting alone without Richard's approval. Because if Buckingham was ordered by Richard, or if Buckingham talked Richard into it, Richard's still totally culpable. He's the boss after all. So, with the ground rules laid, motive. Why would Buckingham kill the princes? Well, Buckingham was about to rebel. Buckingham has a claim to the English throne, and actually it's a better one than Henry Tudor's, since through Thomas of Woodstock there is no suspicion of bastardy. We know Buckingham to be ambitious and volatile, and we know that through his actions in 1483 so getting the boys out of the way would work for him and work for him well. And also, of course, having the boys killed on Richard's watch would discredit Richard, so that's all to the good. Buckingham would be in an ideal position to step in and pick up the pieces. One further thought to support the idea that Buckingham killed the boys is also Elizabeth Woodville's attitude. It would square the circle, would it not, of how Elizabeth felt able to come out of sanctuary. Richard would have been able to say that it was Buckingham that had done the deed, he had been completely unaware, and now she would no longer be coming over to the killer of her children. The traditional objections to the idea that it's Buckingham was that Buckingham wasn't in London, and therefore he might not have had access to the princes in the tower. Secondly, that the idea of him taking a risk this big to kill the princes without Richard's authority is just far too much. And thirdly, because there's almost no suggestion in the Chronicles or evidence against him. So, to take each of these in turn. The first one of access, of course, is critical. Now, as it happens, Buckingham was constable of the Tower. It's at least possible that in this position he could have hired a killer to deal with the princes, in the same way, actually, that Richard himself had to, given that Richard was also very probably not in London if and when the deed was done. I think that, difficult though it might have been, Buckingham would have been able to crack that problem given his position as Richard's right-hand man. On the second point, would Buckingham take the risk of killing the princes without Richard's agreement? Well, it is possible that if the princes were killed in September, that Buckingham had been talked into rebellion by John Morton already by that point. And given that he was prepared to risk all by rebellion, and he knew the consequences for that, then why not risk killing the princes too, in for a penny, as it were? This is essentially a judgment on Buckingham's character. You might well argue that he shows himself to be an impulsive and volatile character in his rebellion, that his ambition and desire to take risks is evident in his rush to Gloucester's side and support for seizing the princes originally in April. Yes, it would have been an enormous risk. If he was found out by Richard, he'd have been toast So it's a judgment call as to whether or not you believe Buckingham capable of taking that step. However, you might quite rightly point out that as it happened, Buckingham did not make his own claim to the throne. In his rebellion in October 1483, he supported Henry's claim. He did not stake his own. You might point out that it's something of a long shot to say that Buckingham would see Henry installed on the throne and then seek to remove Henry at some future date. That's a lot of ifs. Plus also worth noting that if the princes needed to be killed to clear Buckingham's path to the throne then Clarence's son needed to be killed too to clear Buckingham's path to the throne. So to believe Buckingham to be the killer you need to believe that he took the risk of murdering the princes and therefore being found out by Richard to further a claim that also required him to get rid of Henry. You also have to wonder why Richard would not have told the world what Buckingham had done. Though, fair enough, Richard might have told the world, but he might have known that the world might not believe him. The last point, I think, was that there was simply not one shred of reliable evidence, and very little unreliable evidence, two mentions in Chronicles. One that somebody had heard that Buckingham had done it, the other that Richard did it on the advice of Buckingham. So unlike Richard, where at least we have a fair number of contemporaries who at least believed Richard was the killer, no one had fingered Buckingham at all, pretty much. But in a way, I guess that's not surprising, is it? After all, Richard was in the public eye, the obvious candidate. But it would still be surprising that no whisper escaped that actually it was Buckingham. So that's Buckingham. There is a possible motive. And there is probably opportunity. But against that... There is the enormous level of risk Buckingham would have had to take. There is very little mention in Chronicles of the idea and he would have to have been seriously optimistic and a player of the long game to think he could then work through all the people in front of him including Henry in order to take the throne. There is also that question of why if it had been Buckingham Richard did not just expose him. OK, so that's Buckingham, which brings us to Henry VII, in association with mum, Margaret Beaufort. Their turn to stand in the dock of history. Like Buckingham, there's really no other account or chronicle that points the finger at Henry. There's absolutely no whispering, no contemporaries who felt they were likely candidates to have killed the princes. But then, there is at least a good explanation for that. As we have said so many times, I can feel my brain dribbling out of my ear. The Tudors did a great job of controlling the historical message. And anyone accusing a Tudor would have been toast within minutes. The only thing that exists, and it's tenuous, is a 17th century historian called George Buck. Therefore, after the Tudor dynasty had finished, saying that he has it on good authority that, quote, a certain countess was responsible. Now that really is tenuous. But as I say, you maybe wouldn't expect to see any accusations during the reign of Henry or any of his Tudor descendants. So, what are the major arguments in favour of Henry and or Margaret being the killers? Let's take motivation. Removing the princes did absolute wonders for the strength of Henry's claim. Some might say, piffle, five sir! The lads are already illegitimate by Act of Parliament. Why would Henry worry about their claim? The answer is, look what happened when the rebels of October 1483 thought that the princes had died. They all switched their allegiance to Henry. The factions of Woodville, Edward IV's household men, Tudor, Lancastrian, all came together in one immeasurably strengthened party. Also... Henry's legitimacy was greatly enhanced by the titulus regis of Richard's reign being reversed and therefore Edward and Elizabeth Woodville's offspring once more becoming legitimate. That's because he was now marrying Elizabeth of York, daughter of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville, to bolster his claim to the throne. There was no point to doing this if Elizabeth of York was illegitimate. But it did have a downside. By reversing the titulus regis, recognising Edward's offspring, he was also recognising Edward V and Richard of York. By so doing, he was making them more credible as rivals. Now, Henry would know that he could expect a stream of rebellions once he'd become king. That had, after all, become an established part of the cycle of the Wars of the Roses. So Henry would really like the princes firmly out of the way to remove them as future leaders of rebellion. Nope, Henry and Margaret had every reason for wanting those boys out of the way and dead. And think about it, how much better if they died under the protection of Richard before Henry came to the throne, so at once they improved Henry's claim, avoided blame, and blackened the name of their rival. Perfect. They might also have wanted Clarence's son, the Earl of Warwick, dead too. Henry kept Warwick locked up for 14 years, until in 1499 he was at last able to find a charge to have him executed. Now you might look at this in two ways. You might say, oh look, Henry wasn't prepared to kill Warwick until he had a genuine proper reason to do so. What a great guy. Or you might say that the only thing that protected Warwick was that the world was watching, and Henry needed to make up a good excuse, but definitely carried it through as soon as he could. I would raise the same question as I raised, however, for Richard. It is a little curious to me that if Henry had made the effort to kill the princes, why did he not at the same time kill Warwick? So, the other big piece of evidence rolled out against Henry was the passivity of his accusations against Richard. So the act of attainder, we read out a bit at the start of this episode, the act of attainder accused Richard of all sorts of horrid things, and amongst them, as we read, this phrase at the shedding of the blood of innocents. Now that's taken to mean the princes. So why didn't Henry just say you killed the princes? The argument is that Henry didn't make the specific accusation because he knew that mum had killed them, or that he himself had done the deed, and therefore he couldn't possibly write it down. I have to say this accusation is open to the objection that Henry would probably have been perfectly capable of lying in the acts of attainder, even if he had killed them. In fact, he'd probably feel even more confident in making that lie because he knew where the bodies were. It is at least equally as feasible, or possibly even more likely, that the reason these accusations against Richard made by Henry are so vague is because either Henry didn't know exactly what had happened, or actually that really Henry wanted to draw a veil over the whole legitimacy thing. Because this is the way that Henry behaved as soon as he got on the throne. He never bothered to revoke Richard's claim to the throne. He didn't carry through his promises to make Elizabeth of York a kind of dual monarch. What he did was be absolutely ruthless in talking about his claim as being fair and just because it was confirmed by right of conquest. Henry's claim was very shady and he knew it. Henry had no desire to get into anything connected with the previous royal house or the lines of legitimacy. Because it highlighted a claim, i.e. his claim, that was by no means cast iron. As far as he was concerned, the less conversation the better. The less light shone into that particular corner, the better. And finally, access. Now that's got to be a big problem in accusing Henry and Margaret Beaufort of killing the princes, or well, certainly at least before 1485, how would Henry from Brittany, with no network of supporters, organise the killing of the princes? How would Margaret Beaufort, with no access, also organise the same thing? Richard would have controlled access to the princes very closely. Even Stanley and Margaret Beaufort would have found it extremely difficult to carry out an assassination without Richard finding out and being able to tell the world. After Buckingham's rebellion in particular in October, it would surely have been completely impossible. The tower would have been as tight as a gnat's backside. You might claim that if they had achieved it, Richard would have struggled to have convinced anybody that it wasn't him who had actually done the deed. But the obstacles against organising a murder in the tower by Beaufort and Henry under the nose and tight control of Richard, seem insuperable. Of course, it might have been that Henry came to the Tower after Bosworth and killed the princes then. To believe that, you then have to get through the whole question of why Richard had not paraded the princes previously in public, i.e. they would need to be still available to be killed in 1485 when Henry took the throne. Even the rebels against Richard believed the princes to be dead by this stage, as shown by Buckingham's rebellion. And despite the pretenders that then tried to remove Henry VII from the throne, none of them accuse Henry of killing the princes. None of them accuse him of killing Edward V. Surely, if there had been any suspicion or possibility that Henry had killed them, this is a charge they would have made. Their silence is a strong argument for Henry's innocence in this. Indeed, Elizabeth Woodville's willingness to work with Margaret Beaufort and Henry in 1483 is also evidence that she at least did not believe Henry had murdered her sons. So to summarise the argument against Henry and Margaret, without doubt, they have motivation, no problem. If he killed the princes before 1485, there is a big question about how he did that, how they got access to the princes, and also why they didn't attempt to kill Warwick as well. If you believe that Henry killed the princes after 1485, you have to answer also the question of why Richard didn't produce the uns to dispel the rumours of their deaths in 1483-5, to and the complete absence of any accusations by the pretenders that challenged Henry's rule that he, Henry, had killed Edward V. OK, all very complicated. So... Time for the super summary then. There are four options. A. Richard killed them. Was killing the princes really such a motivation? Why didn't he kill Warwick as well? Why did Elizabeth Woodville come to terms with him if she thought he'd killed her sons? Option B. Richard spirited them away to secret safety. Would he really risk such a thing and risk the possibility of them returning to challenge his throne? Option C. Buckingham killed them. Would he really risk doing this under Richard's nose and risk immediate execution? Did he really think he'd be able to remove Henry as well as Richard and therefore make himself king? Seems like a long shot. Option D. Henry or Margaret killed them. How did he or Margaret get access to them before 1485? After 1485 is surely unlikely. If they were still alive and accessible, Richard would have paraded them through the streets of London in 1483 or four. So, those are your options and key objections. I'm sure there are billions more theories. In fact, I know there are. For example, one of those theories is that Richard of York survived and turned up in Thomas More's household. So... Please, bring them all up in the debate on the Facebook page, but four voting options is all you're going to get. Finally, before I go, we should talk briefly of that second question. How should we feel about Richard's actions? So I guess the first thing is that context is everything in history, as I've said before, and that has led a lot of people seeing Richard as just another example of 15th century brutality. The phrase we hear a lot is, a man of his time. And in support of that view, there is quite a lot, is there not? I'm sure we said it in the 1483 episode. Richard was a child of one of the most brutal periods of English history, where retaining the throne meant killing and imprisoning political rivals as well as kings. Henry the Fourth had executed an archbishop, an action which shocked the religiously-minded Englishman. He had in all probability had Richard the Second murdered. The Wars of the Roses had swept away the old notion that the warring classes didn't kill their own. You might remember the distress that the Count of Persh was killed at the Battle of Lincoln in 1142 because he was a nobleman. Now England was littered with the noble dead and the blood feud that only ended with complete death of noble families. So whoever killed the princes can be seen in that light, both as being brutalised by the new politics and having a responsibility to bring this violence to an end However, that would be achieved even with the blood of innocence. However, against that, the death of the princes could be seen as exceptional even in that age. Both were underage minors. Even by medieval standards, it was clear that at twelve, Edward might be old enough to be crowned, but not to reign. They were innocents. The word gets used very consciously by contemporaries. The Chronicle of London talks of the Moors Innocentum, the death of innocence. A Welsh poet in 1485 referred to the bravery of cruel Herod, which is again a theme that gets picked up, a link to Herod's terrible crime. In Henry Tudor's rather vague accusation against Richard, he doesn't fail to point out this shedding of innocent blood, with magnificent cynicism if he'd done the deed, of course. The point is that even contemporaries who had been through the chaos of the Wars of the Roses recognised, or at least some of them did, that there was something exceptional in the death of these princes. And medieval folk found the death of children no less heartrending than we do now. There's been a view that the constant fact of death and infant mortality in the Middle Ages hardened attitudes, that early death was just too common to be grieved in the same way as it would be today. Just to make sure this one is completely dispelled, I'm going to read poetry to you. Sorry about that. I think I have quoted Pearl before. Sorry to do so again. And this is in Bill Stanton's translation. Don't worry, just one verse of it, because it goes on for days. Pearl, to delight a prince's day, flawlessly set in gold, so fair, in all the East, I dare to say, I have not found one to compare. So round, so radiant in array, so small, so smooth her contours were. Wherever I judged jewels Gay, I set her worth as truly rare. I lost her in a garden where through grass she fell to earthen plot. Wounded by love beyond repair, I mourn that pearl without a spot. The author was talking about his three-year-old daughter who had died. Anyway, the point I'm making then is that whoever's responsible, I'm not convinced that the man of his time thing holds up for the princes in the tower that both contemporaries and people like us through the centuries have been fascinated by this exactly because it is an exceptionally horrible act to blameless innocence. Gosh, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water, that's the longest episode ever on the history of England. But the history of England is no place for the faint-hearted, ladies and gentlemen, no place for the faint-hearted. I never said it was going to be easy. It was Alistair Campbell, I think, who talked about punching the bruise, was it not? I.e. repeating the same message to get that key point over. Well, in honour of that slightly nasty phrase, I'm going to repeat that summary I gave earlier. Here goes. A. Richard killed them. Was killing the princes really such a motivation? Why didn't he kill Warwick as well? Why did Elizabeth Woodville come to terms with him if she thought he'd killed her sons? B. Richard spirited them away to secret safety. Would he really risk such a thing and risk the possibility of them returning to challenge his throne? C. Buckingham killed them. Would he really risk doing this under Richard's nose and risk immediate death? Did he really think he'd be able to remove Henry as well as Richard and therefore make himself king? Seems like a long shot. Or D. Henry and Margaret killed them. How did he or margaret get access to them before 1485 after 1485 is surely unlikely if they'd still been alive and accessible richard would have paraded them through the streets of london beforehand in 1483 or 4 so that is finally it don't forget to vote on the facebook page before the end of the 16th of september don't forget to hop along to the website historyofengland.com to see the key points and evidence written down for you. Don't forget to breathe through the excitement of it all and dream of light, truth, justice and a silver Henry with a third penny. Live long, gentle listeners. Live long and prosper.